Welcome back to season three of the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood. As many of you know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of human trafficking called Custom Justice. But if you didn't know, you do now. Keeping in line with that, this entire season has been focused on interviewing people who did or plan to write about their own experiences as trauma survivors and how they overcame their past. If that sounds like you, reach out. We can talk about having you on the show, too. As much as we all hate commercials, they are a necessary evil these days. This is what keeps the show on the air. You can also show support by purchasing one of my many books or donating through PayPal. You can find the links to either option in the podcast description. As always, a portion of the proceeds do go to local organizations that help fight human trafficking. Welcome back to the episode, The Survivor. I am Amanda Blackwood, your host. Uh, I have a young lady on the phone with me today. She has uh, been through quite the journey, and I can't wait to introduce you guys to Miss Ruby Woodland. Uh, I'm going to have her tell you about her story, though. She tells it much better than I do. Uh, Ruby, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I am excited to talk to you. Um, So one of the first questions that I always ask people is, where did you grow up? And I know some of your stuff started happening when you were quite young. Um, But let's talk about where you were at the time. Where where were you living? Um, I lived in Rhode Island. Oh, it's beautiful there. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Well, now I understand the first part of what happened because I would have been doing the exact same thing. Uh, so, (laughs) So tell me about your earliest trauma. What happened and how what started this roller coaster for you? Um, I was eight years old and it was the beginning of summer and I had gone, I was going roller skating with friends and being eight and just not, you know, really thinking things through, we decided to roller skate down the driveway with the sprinklers on. Um, It was a, it was kind of steep. There was like a little sewer thing in the middle. And after we had gone several times, I, my I think it was like the last time we were going to go and my skate caught on the sewer little piece in the driveway and I flew into the air and um, I momentarily blacked out when I woke up I was in a puddle at the end of the driveway and when I first looked up some of my friends who were there were laughing because we were young and didn't really know and then my sister my older sister saw me and just started screaming Um, I had blood like coming down my head and um, it was really kind of, it's hard to really remember because it was a traumatic brain injury. So I was just very, very tired. Um, I remember in the bathroom, my mom trying to clean me up and my sister like screaming, don't let her die. And I was just like, I was scared, but I was so out of it. I didn't like, I wasn't really crying or anything. And then I remember being carried into the emergency room and being taken back right away and brain scans um, and like testing and stuff. And just no one would let me sleep. And I was just so tired. I just wanted to go to sleep. And I guess um, that night I had to be woken up every hour to make sure that I knew the alphabet and I knew my name and just like general like concussion um, things that they look out for and I I know I vomited like 
I think it was, it was just blood. It was, and it was really painful. Um, and that's really wow. all I remember from like that specific actual accident. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of started everything else that came afterward, right? It was all kind of yes. tied back to that moment. Yes. Um, so where did it go after that? So a few days after that, like um, every summer I went to visit a friend of the family who, who lived ne- was our neighbor where I was born at. And at first we didn't think I was going to be able to go because I, I had the, the brain injury. And at the time, this was 1990. Um, and if we weren't, um, medicine wasn't where it is today with, with brain injuries. And because like I, they just assumed it was a concussion. Um, but then when I went to this person's house, it was kind of like everything just suddenly fell apart for me. Um, I struggled to really do anything. I can remember like trying to get dressed and trying to like sit down in a chair and like figure out like, how do I get back up from the chair? Um, even down to like how I swallowed my saliva and how I breathed and just everything that like you automatically do without thinking about was suddenly like, I didn't know how to do it. And I was, I was terrified. I didn't know what was going on. And I just thought, I kept thinking, okay, once I get back home, I'll be okay. And once I got home, I was not okay. Um, but I hit it. Like I, I was just scared of all of it. And I just, I didn't talk to anyone about it. And I just tried to hide it as best as I could. Um, and then I started having like obsessive compulsive tendencies, um, to like the patterns I would walk on the floor, um, just like everything I did. Like I couldn't even walk through a doorway without having to do it in a certain pattern in a certain number of times. Um, and I continued to hide it. Um, I, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school and I thought for some reason, like, I just, I thought God was punishing me. I thought I had done something wrong and God was punishing me. And so, and I was ashamed and embarrassed. And so I just didn't, I didn't talk to anyone about it. I didn't talk to my parents. I just kind of lived like this for almost a year before it became so apparent that something was very, very wrong. Um, And that's when I started going to doctors and having brain scans and, um, um, EEGs and MRIs and finally got the help I needed. My gosh. So it took you how long to be able to tell somebody that you were suffering? Um, I didn't actually tell anyone. I think it was, so my dad said he finally knew they noticed my patterns. They noticed like, um, my issues, like my, I had extreme anxiety. I I became ultra religious, um, like, and just, and obsessive about things. And it wasn't until like, I think my dad said he stood in my way in the kitchen on the path of tiles I usually took. And he stood there for about 10 minutes, seeing if I would go around him and I refused. And I just stood there just waiting for him to move. And that's when he realized like something was not right. Wow. Thank goodness for your dad paying attention. Yes. Yeah. And like, um, like I said, like at the time, it just wasn't is researched as it is now. Um, and then it ended up kind of like all these other issues. Like it, it ended up like, as I got older, it caused hormonal issues um, just because everything in it, um, I still have like 
issues with adrenaline and my blood sugar. Um, and I was, I think when I was like the, the next year I was put on medication for it, um, for like the OCD and the anxiety and that kind of stuff. Wow. And at first, like the medicines, like back then are not what they are now either. Um, and I was, it would cause a lot of side effects. I had, um, like tremors in my hands. Um, I had seizures in my sleep. Um, I had like facial tics and, um, throat tics. And at first, like I, like I was always different. I was always a quirky kid. And at first, like at the, as a younger age, it wasn't, I guess, too noticeable or too big of a deal. But by fifth grade, my peers had really picked up on all of this and I started to get bullied at school. Oh yeah. As if everything you've already been through, wasn't enough. Yeah. My gosh. Wow. So how did they start dealing with it? Did you tell your parents that you were starting to get bullied at school? I didn't. I was just, I was a very private child. I was very independent from a very young age. Very like, I'll, I'll do things my way and by myself. Um, so no, I did not. I didn't confide in anyone um, initially. By seventh grade, I was, I was being harassed every day. Um, and it was actually like, I was being picked on by girls. But it was, um, it was more boys, like, um, like, they would just follow me around and make fun of me and pick on me. And I ended up going to my guidance counselor um, when I was 12 in seventh grade. And he, he asked me if I had done anything to cause the boys to treat me that way. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I was kind of like, I like, I just, you know, I kind of felt like, okay, I, I went to someone for help, which was really hard for me to do with the personality I have and I was embarrassed and then that response I kind of just so I stopped you know I I kind of I've always I loved writing and so I just kind of I had my notebook and all I did was write poetry all day long like when other kids were socializing um until like eighth grade and then eighth grade it got it became not just um teasing and stuff but physical um man yeah so in eighth grade I think it was like right before Christmas break um I was in art class and one boy next to the table sitting with me he kicked me like as hard as he could and I didn't want to like under the table the teacher didn't see and so I asked the teacher to go to the bathroom and I just I, I locked myself in the bathroom stall and just cried for the whole period um and then I think it was like a couple days later some boys um, we had like a, our break time in between classes, morning classes, and they came up and um, smacked my snack out of my hand, stepped on it and kicked it across the floor. Um, and that's just like an example of how like I was treated by other kids. Um, and you know, what? I, it's common for people to talk about uh, mean girl syndrome, but it's not very common for people to recognize and understand that that girls in school are getting severely bullied by boys too. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, so I, after, after, so during Christmas break, like I was depressed and I got increasingly depressed. I was, I was just isolated. We had moved at that point um, from New England to Pennsylvania so, like, I didn't really know anyone, and I was being bullied. I didn't have any friends. Um, and as it approached going back to school, um, it was three days after Christmas, I just hit my lowest point, and I tried to kill myself. 
Oh man, so close to Christmas. Yeah, yeah, it was right after. At that point, that is definitely a huge cry for help. Yeah. Whether or not you're asking for it verbally or not, this is, this is, how did your family react to this? Did they know things had gotten this bad? I mean, they knew I was depressed. Um, I come from like a very hard um, working class family. So my parents just, they worked long hours. Um, My sister was very popular and I was just kind of the odd duck. Um, And, you know, and I was very private. So they didn't, I don't think they realized what was going on in the extent to which it was going on. They knew I was unhappy, but a lot of 13 year olds are right you know, kind of that angsty age um so once I I tried to commit suicide they brought me to a hospital and I was admitted to um, a private psychiatric hospital oh fantastic was that helpful to you um unfortunately no um I was hoping like I wasn't scared of being admitted at that point I was like I was crying out for help and I was, I was depressed. I was, you know, just still dealing with the repercussions of the brain injury. Um, And that's when the hormonal stuff started in really bad. Um, And I was just ready for a place where I could get help. Um, But it unfortunately did not end up being helpful at all. Wow. What happened in the psychiatric facility? Um, so initially when I got there, like I was still recovering from the attempted suicide. I was, you know, not fully aware of what was going on. Um, and the first thing, like I was made to to do a strip search and I didn't really think anything of it initially. Like I didn't want to do it, but they insisted. Um, and then that ended up being kind of their way of, um, they, they were very manipulative in getting kids because, you know, there was like 20-something adolescents um, in the way that they got, tried to have control over that over all of us. Um, so there would be strip searches. Um, wow. There would be, um, they would drug you. Like, I remember being so drugged, like, I didn't even know what I had for breakfast, like, right after I'd eaten it. Oh, my gosh. Um, and they had, like, a point system and if you got a certain amount of points, you, like, basically lost all privileges. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't, um, you know, go socialize. You couldn't leave your room. Um, and then there was a safe room, um, which was definitely not a safe place. It was um, covered in brown carpet, like the floors, the floor and the, the walls, um, which was stained, which everyone said was blood stains, which wasn't hard to believe. Um, and if you like got upset, if you, you know, didn't want to go to therapy, if you, if, even if I cried, they would insist you go to the safe room. Um, there was no, like anyone trying to actually help. It was like being in a juvenile delinquent center. Um, and I didn't like, I, everyone hated going in the safe room and, when they would make you go, like, they would take your, your sweatshirt and your shoes um, because they said, like, you could harm yourself with laces. And, and it was always cold in there. And they would never – there was nothing in there. That, you know, you'd sit on the floor. And they kind of just left you. I mean, if you cried, they, they'd leave you in there for hours crying. 
This um, sounds more like a prison's uh, solitary confinement than a safe place to be. Yes, it, it was. Um, it got to the point where, like, I mean, no one wanted to go to the safe room, and that was their threat about everything. And if you didn't comply, then they, they would threaten to call backup. And backup meant, like, four or five grown adults, like, basically jumping on you and dragging you in. And then they would put you down on your stomach and pull your knees up behind you and your arms behind you and, like, just kneel on you. Like, oh and I gosh being like that and just and not being able to breathe and like at the age of 13 like you don't have a whole lot of self-control to begin with but when you're in a situation where your body's in fight or flight like you know in in that position like you just I I couldn't calm down and I would just get to the point where I thought I was going to pass out um and they were they were very physical um if you didn't comply with whatever they wanted you to do um, I was slammed down on concrete once outside, and um, they actually broke my jaw. Um, and I was pulled by my arm so hard it almost came out of the socket. And I still have like in uh, issues with the injuries caused there, physically and mentally. Did your family were they made aware of the broken jaw at least? No. So they it was not. Um, it wasn't diagnosed as a broken jaw. I couldn't eat. I couldn't open my mouth to eat. So they took me to my orthodontist. And my orthodontist then said, like, he examined it and he said, it's not your braces. And, like, my jaw was swollen. Um, and I couldn't open my mouth. And he asked, like, I remember them asking, like, did you get injured? Did you get hurt? And I had been so drugged at that point because they drove with me away from the facility that, like, I was just like, I can't remember. And I really, like, at the time, I couldn't. Like, I didn't. It was all just such a blur. And you're, you're, I was such in a such heightened state of fight or flight the entire time I was there. Um, and it wasn't until later when I developed uh, lifelong jaw problems that, and I had a scan that there was the calcium, um, the calcification thing of where it had been broken. Wow. My gosh. How old were you when you figured out that it was, that it was broken? Um, I mean, that was probably in my early twenties when I, when the, the pain had become so severe. That is a long time to live with that kind of pain and to not even understand where it came from because of being drugged because of this massive amount of awful trauma. I mean, it's bad enough. You go in there because you're needing help because of a mental illness, because you're suicidal. And then people treat you like this as though you're less than a human. Yeah. Oh, I I know that this isn't the case, but I hope some of those people did prison time. Um, Yeah. I, I would, (laughs) I would love to hear that, but yeah. So how has all of this kind of impacted your life and who you are now? Um, for a long time, I, you know, I didn't expect to make it, um, after you experience like that kind of trauma, like not just like the trauma I had as a child, but wanting to go somewhere and feel like I was safe and people were going to help me and then being treated that way. Like it, it just jaded me. Like I felt like that's what the world had to offer. Um, like that was like my cry for help and I was just my world was just shattered so for a long time I 
I struggled. I, um, I, I did a lot of drugs and alcohol to numb myself from having to feel anything. Um, and I just, you know, that's just how I got by for the next probably 15 years. Self-medication is a very real thing. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of people that have never experienced these kinds of traumas don't understand where uh, drug addictions and where alcoholism can stem from. But a lot of it does come from those early rooted traumas. Yeah. It's, it's a horrible cycle. Yes, it really is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What helped you to heal from the emotional trauma of everything that you've had to go through? Um, I've always been interested in like different religions and spiritualities um, and then in college, like, even while I was still in the, like, the midst of, you know, using drugs and stuff, I've always loved to read. And so I started reading nonfiction, like, spiritual books. Um, and that kind of just led me down a path of exploration with all of that. And from reading books, I went to taking classes, to seeing different kinds of healers, Um, And then really, I credit probably the most significant impact with with shamanism. So I saw a a shaman local in my area a couple times. And the feeling I got, I had afterwards of just finally feeling like calm in my own body was like, it was really profound. And so I decided I wanted to kind of learn learn more about shamanism and and do it myself and so I ended up taking um the medicine wheel which is a year-long class and it just and it's all about healing um it's it's to teach you how to become a shamanic healer but in order to do that it's all about healing yourself first so that entire first year was spent on healing myself um and it made me feel for the first time in my life like shamanism is all about the planet, the earth, and the connection with nature. And that's always where I felt the most at peace, whether it's at the beach or in the woods or like at a park, anywhere where I'm connecting with nature. And once I really like dove into that, I just felt for the first time, like, like I'm not alone. I'm not, no, I I was so alone in what I was going through, but like there's something bigger than me and that I'm a part of. That is very cool. So if, if somebody else was going through what you were going through and they're looking for that same kind of help, do you have any hints or tips on how somebody can find help through that, that outlet? Through like shamanism or spirituality? Right. Um, I mean, I would say start with what, start with books because that's the most accessible. Um, see what there is, you know, in your town locally, like, like a Reiki healer or um, there's archangel healing, um, shamanism, anything like that. And then even like yoga, not just the physical practice of yoga, but um, the Nayamas and they're all like really profound and about like spiritual and that kind of stuff. And so really just, I would just explore what's in your area and there's now since covid there's so much available online too that you can participate in 
I've definitely noticed that there's been a huge uptick for online services for, you know, not just shamanism, but for mental health services in general. Yes. And it's hugely helpful. Yeah. Where was this 10 years ago? We still had the internet then. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So what's the name of the book that you've written uh, and how does it relate to your own traumatic experiences? Um, The book is called Eternal Dark. And it's, it's a speculative fiction um, in the dystopian area. Um, it's more literary fiction than genre fiction because it's, it's very character-driven. Um, it's written in third person, and it's got, like, over 10 different characters' points of view. There is a plot, but there is, it's, just, it's very much about the characters. And initially, when I started writing it, it was – I would, took all of that fear – that I had when I was hospitalized and that loss of basically of my freedom and what that would be like in a future world um, where, where that's like the common thing for people. And it was really character driven. So I kind of just, I totally pantsed it and <laughs> I just started writing and the characters just had so much so much to give to it and there is like if you once you read it you'll see there are pieces of different things that I experienced that are I kind of gave each to each character to kind of carry for me and it ended up being very cathartic but it was also it opened up stuff like instead of speaking about the things that have happened to me I tried to shove them down and forget about it and writing that book brought all of it to the surface that I, and I wasn't expecting it. And it ended up, I, I have PTSD that was under control, but once I wrote that book, that PTSD just, it just flared up to the point where I ended up having to really start doing different kinds of trauma therapy and seeking help so that I could finally talk about the stuff that happened. I've definitely found a lot of that in the guests on my show. When you start diving into and writing about your personal experiences, it sometimes surfaces stuff that has long since been forgotten. And suddenly you're forcing yourself to have to deal with it all over again. And not all of us can do that on our own. We need help. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's possible to heal that kind of trauma by yourself. You need other people, whether it's a therapist or, um, you know, a spiritual advisor or just a best friend or partner. Yeah, some kind of a guide. Yes. So have you got a bit of your book that you would like to read for us? Um, I can. Would you like me to read the back cover blurb? I, that sounds wonderful. I'd love that. Let's tell these people what your book is about. Give them okay. a little taste. Okay. It says, the darkest of humanity controls the world. When an orphaned teenage boy is caught stealing food and sent to a reform school, his chances of ever being free again are non-existent. But a future far worse than being government property is imminent. Will he be able to escape his fate? Kalini wants answers to her twin sister's disappearance, and once she gets them, she seeks revenge. Can Can she finalize plans before another child disappears? 
Daryl has only three months until his 18th birthday, and then he will finally be eligible for re-entry into society. But will he ever truly be free? The government has been inciting a genocide of the lower-class citizens for decades, and children are being used as servants, test subjects, and for far sinister purposes. But a resistance is building, and a covert group of rebels have plans for a revolution. Told through multiple characters' viewpoints, in a dystopian society darker than any other, this fast-paced novel will keep you turning the page until the very end. That is awesome. And I mentioned before we started recording this episode today that I'm planning on adding Eternal Dark to my to-be-read list. So when I go and look for it, where am I most likely going to find it? It's available on Amazon. It's available as an ebook and a paperback. It's also available um, on Barnes & Noble, on Kobo, and I can't think, um, Nook. And it's available through Ingram Spark for bulk order as well. Very cool. And that's called Eternal Dark right by Ruby Woodland. Yes. Nice. Now, how do you celebrate your wins in life when you do something as remarkable as getting through writing this book or accomplishing another milestone in life? I really just celebrate with my family. Um, I keep it pretty small and we just like have dinner or like go out to eat somewhere nice um, or go on vacation or like somewhere in nature. Oh, that's awesome. And there's always one last question. Oh, I'm not quite to that part yet. I did want to ask who inspires you the most and why? That's a good question. Um, it's hard to really pick one person. I think as far as like someone who's kind of been an anchor for me in life um, has been my Aunt Gertie. She's someone that I always like felt safe and loved around and I've always aspired to be like her. She was always, she loved nature and she just loved doing things for other people and being with animals. And she was just a beautiful soul. Oh, that's awesome. Was she aware how much you loved her? I hope so. <laughs> She's <laughs> passed away now, but I hope so. Yeah. I had a feeling you talked about her in past tense. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And the one last question I always ask everybody, name at least one thing that you love about yourself. That's not related to physical appearance. Um, I'd have to say my perseverance. I've definitely been someone who's been knocked down a lot, but I always get back up again. Yes, ma'am, you have. <laughs> <laughs> you're an inspiration to people. You should know that, and I hope you're aware of that. Thank you. I really appreciate you being on my show today. I cannot wait for people to discover Eternal Dark and to figure out who this incredible Ruby Woodland really is. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed tonight's episode, please make sure you check out the episode description. There you're going to find links on how you can learn more about this guest, links to connect with them on social media, and how to support the podcast. Remember, I don't get paid to do this. My boss is a bit tight-fisted, but I can say that I work for myself. In short, this show really is all about the guest. If you've enjoyed their interview, please feel free to let them know. 
You can also tune into my other podcast, Growth from Darkness, which is co-hosted by a lovely lady from Australia. We talk about what trauma responses are and healthy ways to move beyond the past. For more information, just go to growthfromdarkness.com.